Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of Him, and through Him, and to Him are all things... To whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our time of the study of God's Word this morning, we need to make sure that we are uh, prepared for that. Scripture teaches that in the study of God's Word, it is the indwelling God, the Holy Spirit, who through His ministry of filling enables us to understand, uh, remember, apply the Word of God. The spiritual life in the church age is uniquely built upon this relationship with God the Holy Spirit, which is often referred to as being in fellowship or walking by means of the Spirit or being filled by means of the Spirit. Scripture teaches that whenever we sin, we are out of fellowship. That fellowship with God, the ongoing rapport with God is broken due to the presence of sin in our life, for sin is not compatible with the character of God and the solution is simply based on grace. It is admission to God of our sin, simply admitting it to Him through confession in prayer. At that instant, Scripture says we are forgiven and cleansed of all sins, not just the ones we mention, but of all sins in God's grace. They are all cleansed simply because Christ has already paid their penalty, and this is simply a process which we go through to uh, cleanse ourselves, to be sanctified, a process that is always true in Scripture from Genesis through Revelation on into eternity that those who come in the presence of God must first be sanctified. And so this is a process and part of ongoing sanctification is to confess our sins uh, to the Lord using the principles in 1 John 1, nine. So we always begin with a few moments of silent prayer and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, you are the omniscient creator of all things. In your omniscience, you put together a plan for creation, a plan for history, a plan for salvation, a plan for the spiritual life that, because of your omniscience, understood everything, every aspect, every particle of things that would occur during the history of mankind and during our own lives. And you made a perfect provision for that. It is in your word that we come to understand all the different aspects of life, for you have given us sufficient revelation that becomes the framework of thought about your creation. Now, Father, as we submit ourselves to the teaching of your word, especially in the area of worship, we pray that you would help us to understand the things that we study. God the Holy Spirit would make these things clear to us and that they would be of great benefit in our own spiritual life and our own personal worship. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are in Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5. We began this last year, the year of 2007, going into this scene in the heavenlies in Re- that is described in Revelation chapter 4 and 5. It's unfortunate 
that these two chapters were broken as chapters because they describe the same scene. In chapter 4, we describe the scene. We see who the players are around the throne of God. We see God the Father upon the throne. We see that he is surrounded or encircled by these creatures known as the four living beings. And then surrounding them are the 24 elders who uh, represent the risen, raptured, rewarded church age believers in heaven. It is at that introduction of the creatures before the throne of God that we begin to see a biblical view of worship. Revelation 4 and 5 is perhaps one of the most significant chapters in the New Testament related to worship. We have the song of the four living creatures given in verse 8 of chapter 4. Then there is a song of the 24 elders in 4.11. Then when we come into chapter 5, we have another song of the four living creatures and the 24 elders, which I believe is sung antiphonally in verse 9, and then another song involving all of the angels that's recorded in verse 12 of chapter 5 as well as verse 13. The fact that there is worship and song before the throne of God in the future is very important for understanding just exactly what the nature of worship is all about. Whether you realize it or not, we live in a world today where in evangelical Christianity, and I almost hate to use that word because it has become so pusillanimous that uh, people use the term evangelical to refer to numerous groups of Christians that have some of the most um, absurd and anemic doctrines, and I almost hate to be associated with them. We are more concerned about being biblical in our understanding of the things of the Lord than in uh, these uh, categories such as evangelical. But within the scope of modern American evangelical and fundamentalist Christianity, there's a battle has developed for the last 25 or 30 years over this whole topic of worship and the topic of music. Some of you are not aware of that because uh, you have not been in a church that has been influenced by this at all. Others of you are aware of that because you have children or grandchildren and you have visited their churches and you've been somewhat appalled as to what has transpired in uh, other churches. Others of you just hear about this uh, because you read things or hear things or you occasionally turn on the television and watch some church broadcast and you recognize that the music that is uh, sung in many churches today is not like what we do here. It's not like the music perhaps uh, that you were familiar with when you grew up in that, that denomination. Changes have occurred and the changes affect not only what happens on Sunday morning, but it also happens on uh, Christian radio. Uh, Christian radio is a purveyor now of what is popular, and people don't want to listen to the uh, great old hymns of the faith that had solid doctrinal content. They are moved more by contemporary forms of music that are not too different from the kind of music that they listen to on uh the other channels on the radio and that's the only thing they see is different is the words but music is uh, often the same just the words are changed but there's uh, a lot that needs to be said about both aspects lyrics and music but behind this is a doctrine of worship an understanding of what worship is and worship isn't a simple doctrine because worship assumes conclusions from various areas 
of theology. For example, it assumes certain things about the nature and character of God, and that's the area of theology proper. It assumes certain things about the nature, the person, the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's Christology. It assumes certain things about the role of the Holy Spirit in this age and in worship, and that's pneumatology. It assumes certain things about the nature of man, in terms of his, whether he is totally depraved or not, whether he is constitutionally spiritually dead or whether he's just spiritually weak. And this affects your reasons for why music has developed the way it's developed. Because in the modern church, modern evangelical church, we too often have an anemic view of man, an anemic view of God, and an anemic view of the cross. And all of this affects what has happened in the way church is done on Sunday mornings throughout the United States. And we have also exported this through our missionaries so that it's not just a factor of what happens here, but if you go to uh, Kenya or you go to France or you go to uh, China or you go to the former Soviet Union or any of the former Soviet republics and go to the churches that have been founded, started, and established there uh, through American missionaries, they're singing the same sort of anemic uh, choruses on Sunday morning. So this is a critical thing. In fact, it's so critical that I have a friend of mine whose name I won't mention because I haven't asked him for permission. He's a pastor of another church similar to ours. All of you would know him. And he teaches at a uh, Bible college. And he has had, he's, he's observed to, to me, same thing that I've observed when I've taught in Bible college, and I know several men who teach in Bible college, that as opposed to 15 or 20 years ago when a good teaching pastor would come into a Bible college classroom and teach, students would say, wow, this guy really knows the Word. My pastor really doesn't teach much. I want to find out where this man's church is, go to his church where I can learn the Bible. Today, what happens is students are saying, well, you know, it doesn't really matter what happened. My pastor can't teach the Bible. I'll learn that at college. But we have great worship. See, they make the mistake of equating worship with singing. And so they won't visit and rarely visit. And when they do, and I have heard this from not only this one man that I have in mind, but from several others, when they do visit, when asked why they don't come back, it is because of the worship. It's because, well, you're just singing those old dead hymns. You have traditional worship. We need to sing a new song. And it's the new uh, contemporary Christian worship that is real, really spiritual. And because you don't want to do that, you are, in their terms, by definition, carnal. And uh, I've been called carnal because of this view. Others have been called carnal because we don't want to walk into this uh, contemporary Christian worship Format. Now, I see some expressions on faces where you go, wow, I can't believe that. Well, this is the world in which we live. This is a major battlefield. I would say that in terms of some key doctrines, this is one of three or four major battlefields in Christianity today because it is through music that a lot of doctrine is communicated or caught more people get their doctrine from what they sing than from what they hear from the pulpit. And especially when you recognize how light the teaching is from most pulpits, you see why the content of the words in many songs is so light, it is so weak, it is so spiritually uh, superficial, because they really haven't been taught enough to re- uh, of the word to really reflect with any kind of profound thinking on the Word. And all of these facets and aspects come together, but that's all part of what goes on in worship. And so underlying this thinking about singing is a is the doctrine of worship. So we want to address the doctrine of worship first and then come and look at the role of music in the worship 
of the local church. And there's no better place to do this than in Revelation 4 and 5. We studied this to some degree last year in the end of February and 1st of March as we came to the those first two hymns of praise in chapter 4. And now as we come out of these two chapters at the end of chapter 5, I'm going back to review and add to those principles because they're very important. One of the problems that we have today, the same old problem we've had for hundreds of years, is that when unbelievers come into an assembly of believers, things should be different. But they come into an assembly of believers that are singing songs that now we live in a culture that's so divorced historically from our roots that we sing songs that are in formats shaped in the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries And it's not like what they hear on the radio, in some cases, 24-7. Not what they listen to on their iPod. Just walk around a college campus today. You'll be amazed at how many students who walk around have earbuds in their ears. Because they're always listening to music. And this shapes their thinking. So they come into church and they hear music that is in a format very different it's it's off-putting. It's 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 not comfortable for them. This is one thing that's happened today: is the church said, "Well, we want to make church comfortable for unchurched and unbelievers, so that they don't feel too much of a culture shock." So we have all kinds of problems there. But anyway, we got into back into Revelation five last week. I did a review of what was happening in Revelation four and five, which brought us to. Uh, verse 11. In verse 11, we see a reference to the angels singing around, uh, around the throne. In verse 11, we read, Then I looked, excuse me a minute while I turn on this other projector. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders And the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. The author here is alluding to the same imagery that we find in Daniel chapter 7 verse 10 where there is a reference to an innumerable heavenly host surrounding the throne of the ancient of days. This apparently is not something that happens all the time in scripture but is one that occurs Uh, I mean, all the time in heaven, but one that occurs frequently in heaven. In verse 12, we read, saying with a loud voice. Now, before we get any further, I want to point out that the Greek word for saying here is the verb lego, which is your standard word uh, for saying. It is not the verb adusen, which is the word for singing, which is found back in verse 9 where we read they sang a new song. However, lego is a broad word that can include singing. And when you compare the content of verse 12 and verse 13 with the content of verse 9, you compare the content of verse 8 and verse 11 with verse uh, chapter 4, verse 8 and verse 11 with verse 9, you see that the thrust of all of these passages is on singing. They are not simply uh, reciting or chanting these words. This, these are songs that are sung. Furthermore, the angels are doing this. There's the mention of uh, musical instruments in the passage, which suggests that they are uh, singing hymns before the Lord. And what they are singing here is to the Lamb, not the, not the one on the throne until we come to Uh, verse 13, but this is specifically addressed to the Lamb, which is the second person of the Trinity. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive, and I've put in yellow and uppercase in the uh, translation on the screen, the word the, because in the Greek you have an article here before the first noun. None of the other nouns have an article, and what this tells us is that the writer is viewing these seven attributes as parts of one composite whole. He's not looking at seven distinct attributes, but he is viewing them as all part of the one whole, referring to the Lamb. Uh, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive the power 
and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Seven attributes are mentioned here. It, indi- it says that he is worthy to receive these. It is not that he is receiving these at this time, for the second person of the Trinity has always possessed these. It is that it is here that he is receiving adoration and worship for his possession of these uh, qualities. In fact, another point of grammar here is that that plays into singing as well, and the, the, in terms of the lyrics, is notice how the, it is written to receive the power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Why does he add the conjunction and between every noun? Why doesn't he just say worthy to receive power, riches, wisdom, might, honor, glory, and blessing? It's because by adding the and, it forces us to slow down and to think about each of these attributes. And that's part of what you should be doing when you sing hymns is thinking about the words. The words are written in order to guide and direct our thinking towards the person and the work of God or the person, the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see just an example of that in the way this is, this is structured. Well, the first, the first of these is the word dunamis, which refers to ability, to power, to might, and is a reference to the omnipotence of God. The Lamb is the eternal second person of the Trinity, is eternally uh, uh, omnipotent. He has all power. That is the ability to do exactly what he would like to do. It is similar to the fourth attribute here that is mentioned might or strength, the Greek word iskus. The difference is that dunamis addresses Christ's inherent power, his inherent omnipotence as part of his attributes. Iskus focuses on the use of his omnipotence, the use of that power. We find this word in the Greek translation of, uh, in conjunction with several of these other attributes that we find here in Revelation 5.12 in the Septuagint translation of 1 Chronicles 29.11 and 12, which is addressed to Yahweh. Yours, O Yahweh, is the greatness, the power and the glory, the victory and the majesty. For all that is in heaven and on earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord. And you are exalted as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you. And you reign over all. In your hand is power and might. In your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. So we have the word for riches, the word for honor, and the word for glory are joined with the word for power in that uh, ador- praise of adoration in First Chronicles So the first word is the word dunamis, and then the second is the word plutos. Plutos means richness or wealth, uh, the abundance of goods. And when this is applied to the Lord Jesus Christ, it includes not only spiritual wealth, but all wealth as befitting a sufficient God that he has His riches are in such expanse that there is enough for all, for any and every situation and circumstance. It relates to his power, that God's power is so vast and so uh, extensive that there is no problem or difficulty that you and I face in life that is too great for the power of God. He is rich in his provision of grace. Paul wrote in Philippians, But my God shall supply all your needs through his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. So it is that sufficiency of God's power and provision that supplies us in every situation. Third, he is wise. 
He possesses wisdom. This is the Greek word Sophia, but even though it's a Greek word, it doesn't have as its primary meaning the nuance of wisdom that is Greek in origin, but it is the nuance of wisdom that is Hebrew in origin. Greek wisdom often has to do with abstract knowledge that is related to philosophy and logic. Uh, Greek thought was not the frame of reference for the writers of Scripture. It was Mosaic thought that was the frame of reference for the writers of Scripture. So when you have writers like John and Paul and Peter writing of wisdom, they're not thinking in terms of Greek thought. They're thinking in terms of Old Testament wisdom. The Hebrew word was chokhmah, which has to do with skill at doing something. The craftsman who designed the uh, metalwork in the uh, tabernacle and later in the temple, uh, Bezalel and Aholiab, were filled with the Spirit and given skill, chokhmah, wisdom, skill to produce works of art in what they were producing. And this is what we see here is that this is a skillfulness that is related to who he is. It emphasizes the skill of God in devising the divine plan in his conscious and purposeful creation of the universe and his skill at guiding it toward its destiny and the skill of his wisdom. It relates to not just the omniscience that lies behind that, but the skillful application of that omniscience to all that is. And then fourth, we have iscus, strength. Strength relates to the application of omnipotence, that he has the ability to apply his power, and we can't divorce that from either in a sufficient way in terms of riches or in a skillful or wise way in terms of Sophia. And then the fifth is Timae, which is the Greek word for honor or respect. And this is a vital part of worship. You go back into the Old Testament, and one of the facets of worship in the Old Testament is the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is not just having a simple respect for God, but it is an awe-inspired respect for God, a recognition that failure to apply God's word results in horrendous consequences of divine discipline and negative circumstances. So there is a sense in which we have a very serious fear about God and the obedience uh, to his word. So it's that, that is also an aspect of worship in the Old Testament, that uh, we fear the Lord. We have great respect for him. This is part of coming together corporately in worship, not just to reflect upon what he has done or what he means to me, but to reflect upon the fact that he is in and of himself because of who he is as our creator, because of his majesty, because of his power, because of his gracious provision of everything, because he is the ultimate righteous judge of the universe. He is worthy of respect. And so we come together to Worship him, and part of that is to uh, respect, to show our respect for him and what he has done. And this all is part of the sixth attribute, which is his glory. To may, when it is used in conjunction with doxa in the scriptures, is a part of that doxa. The uh, honor that we have for him is part of his glory. The word doxa refers to his divine and heavenly radiance. It is related to the Old Testament word kavod, which means to be weighty or heavy. Sort of like the old uh, 70s slang that when something happened, it was, oh, that's heavy, man. Well, that's the idea that God is weighty, that, that this is serious matter, this is profound uh, material that the person of God is not to be taken lightly, 
but that the study of God's Word is the weightiest of all things. And so the word for glory has at its core a semantic meaning, the idea of being very serious, very heavy, that this reflects His uh, splendor, His majesty, and His authority. This is all part of the fact that He is unique as the Creator God of the universe. And then the seventh and last attribute that is mentioned related to the Lord Jesus Christ is eulogia, where we get our English word eulogy, which is not the same thing. It's come to mean something quite different from its Greek root. It has to do with a commendation or blessing. We think of a eulogy as something that is said at, the, at a funeral or memorial service where we talk about the good things that a person has done in their life, and that has some uh, etymological relationship. But in Scripture, eulogia has to do with a commendation, a blessing, and is often used for praise, where when we, we're not blessing Jesus, we are praising Him, would be a better translation. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. He is worthy because of who he is as the eternal second person of the Trinity, and he is worthy because what he did as the Lamb. When we see this term Lamb, which is John's favorite term for referring to the Lord Jesus Christ in the book of Revelation, when we see that, it always speaks of his sacrificial work on the cross that when John the Baptist first laid eyes on Jesus down at the uh, Jordan River, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. When we read an emphasis on the Lamb, what is always part of that meaning is that He is the one who was the sacrifice for our sins. The basic problem that man has is sin. It's not psychological. It's not sociological. It's not economic. It is spiritual. Man is born spiritually dead. He is separated from God. God is the one who created man, and only when man is in right relationship with God can man have real happiness, can he understand the real meaning and purpose of his life, and that begins only if there is new life in place of spiritual death. The term the Bible uses to refer to that is regeneration. And regeneration takes place when a person puts their faith in Jesus Christ. That simply means that you understand that Jesus Christ died on the cross for you. He was your substitute, that you were under condemnation for sin, Adam's original sin, and the penalty for that is eternal death. But Jesus Christ took that spiritual death upon himself on the cross. Spiritual death is separation from God. When Jesus Christ hung on the cross between 12 noon and 3 p.m. on that day, the uh, darkness covered the the, uh, area of Golgotha so people could not see his horrible suffering. And it was at that time that the justice of God imputed to the Lord Jesus Christ every single sin that you committed in history and that you will commit. And every single sin of every human being was poured out upon him at that time, and he was separated judicially from the Father, which is why he cries out, uh, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's because during that time he is judicially separate from the Father. He is judicially spiritually dead, bearing our sins in his own body on the cross that we might have eternal life by simply trusting in him, accepting that death on our behalf. And so he is, because he is the lamb who was slain, he is worthy to be adored, to be worshipped, to be honored because of who he is as summarized in these seven attributes. And so as we see in the imagery of Revelation 5, that John, standing there in the future, this is future to us, standing there in the future, he sees exactly what will take place at this point in time just prior to the beginning of the tribulation. When God the Father is on his throne, he has in his hand a scroll. 
That scroll is written on the inside and outside. It's sealed with seven seals. There's an announcement from this strong angel for who is worthy to open the seals. There's a search worldwide, universe-wide, for someone worthy. No one can be found. John is so distraught over this that he weeps uncontrollably. He is consoled by the uh, one of the elders who tells him to stop weeping because the lion of the tribe of Judah, uh, the root of David, has prevailed. And because of what he did on the cross, he is worthy to open uh, the seals of this scroll. And so it is then that John sees the lamb as though it had been slain coming out from the uh, throne of God, taking the scroll in his right hand. And it is at that point when the Lamb takes the scroll that those who surround the throne break forth singing praise to God because, and to the Lamb for what he, who he is and what he has done. Verse 9, the 24 elders and the uh, seven, uh, and the, the 24 elders and the four living creatures say, You are worthy to take the scroll, to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And the four living creatures respond and have made them, referring to the church, kings and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then all of the angels join in and begin to sing together. Verse 12, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive the power and the riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And then in verse 13, Every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea, and all things in them, I heard saying, to him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb, to be blessing, and honor, and glory, and dominion forever and ever. A couple of things we should note about this verse. First of all, the timing of this verse. This is before the opening of the first seal. This is when there are still mostly unbelievers on the earth, those that uh, there may be a few believers who had heard the gospel prior to the rapture, and once the rapture occurred, they went, oops, I better believe what my neighbor told me, what my mother told me, what my friend told me, but it's too late, they're saved, but they're still going to go through the tribulation. So there are numerous unbelievers on the earth. The Antichrist may or may not, probably has not been revealed at this time, though he might have. The false prophet is still on the earth. You still have Satan in rebellion against God. You still have uh, all of the fallen angels in rebellion against God. So when we read in verse 13 that every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea, we're not talking about fallen men or fallen angels or any of the creatures who have rejected Christ. We are talking about sentient beings here. We're not talking about horses and dogs and cattle and fish and birds. This is known as a figure of speech. It's a merism. A merism is a term that uses two extremes in order to talk about the whole or the entirety of something. For example, Psalm 1 talks about meditating on the law of the Lord day and night. These two opposites, day and night, indicate your, your extremities. And it's talking about the fact that man should continuously be thinking within the framework of divine viewpoint and what the Word of God teaches. And Genesis 1.1, God created the heavens and the earth. These are your two opposites. It includes everything. So frequently in Scripture you have these phrases for example, light and dark. Well, there's nothing else. These are the two opposites. It's an inclusive term. So when you have a statement like this, the writer is emphasizing that all this involves all of the holy angels, all of the elect angels, all of the uh, Old Testament saints who haven't been re- haven't received resurrected bodies yet. That doesn't occur till the end of the tribulation, and all of the rapture rewarded. 
uh, church-age believers, not just the 24 elders, but all of them, every created thing in heaven, on the earth, and under the earth, see, and on the sea. Can you think of any other thing spatially that's left out? No, it's, it's a term for just the including everything. All things in them I heard saying. So this is a chorus of including all of God's creatures, those that are in obedience to Him, uh, men and angel. And they sing to Him who sits on the throne, a title for the Father. Only in Revelation is the Father on the throne. The Son is never on the throne. It is the Father's throne. The Son doesn't receive His throne until the second coming when He, re- when he receives the throne of David. So the Phrase to him who sits on the throne in the book of Revelation always refers to the Father and to the Lamb. See, in just in this very verse, you see this. There's a distinction between the two personages: the Father who's on the throne and the Lamb who is has come out from the throne. In the context of Revelation five, and to them they are ascribing blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. Now, we've already seen the words for blessing, eulogia, honor, temeh, glory, doxa, and dominion here is in reference to what will come about as a result of opening the scroll, that the Son will come to establish His kingdom on the earth, and that will culminate after the thousand-year rule and reign of the new heavens and the new earth when Father, Son, and Holy Spirit take up their domain upon the earth and sin is no more. So it anticipates what God will do. And then we come to verse 14 that says, And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Now we have two different words there that are of significance. The word to fall down is the Greek word pipto, which can mean to fall, to stumble, to trip. But in context where we're involved with worship or obeisance to a monarch, it simply means to prostrate oneself. And the second word that's translated worship is the standard word that we find for worship in the New Testament, and that is proskuneo, which means to uh, bow down, uh, has literally the... Uh, semantic uh, or etymological background simply to bow the knee but it means to worship to do obeisance to show respect or to prostrate oneself before uh, an authority so that is part of what worship involves it is the uh, 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 it is when we prostrate ourselves mentally before the authority of God when we recognize that He is the absolute authority in our lives and we subordinate and submit our thinking to Him. That is, we will see, is the core idea that we find in worship. It is submission to the authority of God. Now, part of the problem that we all run into as believers is that when you first become saved, you have loaded up in your mind all kinds of ideas. Some of these ideas are consistent with Scripture, perhaps. Some are maybe far away from Scripture. You may have various views about marriage and family and society, politics, money, all kinds of ideas that may be far away from Scripture. You may have a background where you have grown up in uh, pantheism, where you have grown up in some sort of secular scientific environment where you never even thought that you would ever believe that God created everything because you were always taught that everything was a matter of time plus chance and that somehow in the chaos of chance that order and purpose and meaning could develop. Or perhaps you come out of a depressive, nihilistic, existential, postmodern background where you just thought that there was no meaning, purpose, value whatsoever to life. And now you come to the Bible and you realize that the Bible says a whole lot of things which you were taught were kind of screwy. And some of the things are hard for you to understand and hard for you to swallow because they're, they're not comfortable because of whatever your background or training was. And the whole process that you need to understand for the spiritual life is a process of learning, of learning to exchange the human viewpoint 
concepts that you developed before you were saved, and in some cases after you were saved, and exchanging those for what the Bible says in His Word. Sometimes you won't understand these things the first time you hear them. For some of you, you won't understand them the 50th time that you hear them. It is a process of growth. We've all gone through that. We read certain things, or even things today that I read, and I go, I'm not quite sure I understand how that can be. But that seems to be what the text is saying. And so I have to think about it, study it, work through it. Sometimes I change views I had earlier in life because I come to a fuller understanding of what what the Scripture is saying. But that's ultimately where personal worship begins is in that process of being willing to submit your thinking to the thinking of God. That because God said it, it's true. I remember years ago there was a, a bumper sticker that said, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. Some of you have seen that. That's really heresy. That is part of what's wrong with our whole culture today. Because if you think about how that is structured, it says, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. The settling is because I believe it. No, the settling is because God said it. It should read, God said it, that settles it. I believe it. It is true because God said it. I may not always understand it or comprehend the whys and the wherefores and the mechanics and the complexities of it, but I know that if it's in the Word of God, God has said it, and therefore it is true in my finite little mind based on the limited education that I have just may not fully be able to pull it all together yet. Furthermore, I have to recognize that no matter who I am or who you are, we've all been culturally conditioned in certain ways. Now, you may not recognize that if you don't get outside of your own culture very much, but just travel around the world a little bit and live with some Africans in Africa and live with some Indians in India, live with some Ukrainians in Ukraine or some Jews in Israel. You begin to find out that people don't think like you think. And that's because of the culture out of which they come. We all come out of this this culture that the Apostle Paul calls the world. And so there are always things that come out of our own world context that are comfortable to us and things in the Word of God that may not really seem all that comfortable to us. But that's part of the process of of growing. This is what we have to understand when we get into the doctrine of worship, especially if you are under the age of 50. If you've been around Christianity very much, maybe you haven't, even, haven't been in Bible teaching churches very much, maybe you're younger and you just haven't been exposed to a lot of uh, Bible teaching or church life, and you've been to this church or that church or watched this thing on TV, and you recognize that you know, there's a difference between how some churches do church how other churches do church. Some churches are what we call high church. They're very liturgical. There's a lot of formality. There are, uh, there's liturgy. There's the recitation of the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed. There are times when you stand up, times when you sit down, times when you kneel. Uh, there are candles that are lit. There are the smells and bells. All of this is related to various forms of high church, ritual, liturgical churches. Some of these practices go back into the uh, early dawn of Christianity. Some were introduced from paganism, some from other sources, but that's one kind of worship. Then on the other extreme, you have the low church, and what we what's coming today is called the emergent church, where you go into some churches and everybody sits around on a beanbag chair, and uh, somebody might pull out a guitar and strum something, and somebody sings something, and they all just have a little conversation with one another about what God might mean and what Jesus might mean, and then they go home feeling like they really impress God. That's uh, the emergent church movement. And there's all kinds of things. In between, where you have churches that have 
what is usually called, and I think it's wrong to do this, but usually called traditional worship, which is more like what we have where you sing uh, traditional hymns out of a hymn book. But that's very rare today among evangelical and Bible churches. Usually they've gone with the influence from the contemporary Christian worship movement where instead of a hymnal, they put uh, the words up on a screen, and there's usually what's a praise and worship band up in front where they have a couple of guitar players, a synthesizer, a drum, a couple of blondes with uh, uh, tambourines, and, uh, and they uh, sing more as performance than as leaders of worship. And people in the congregation can either follow along or not, but nobody has copies of the music. And that has become more and more of a standard, especially in the larger, uh, larger megachurches. And so this, a lot of young people are really attracted to this. And I began to notice about 10 years ago that you would see signs outside of churches on their, on their billboards that we have traditional worship on Sunday morning and contemporary worship on Friday night or Saturday night. And so these kinds of differences entered in, and a lot of people don't know where they come from or what the background is, and they they just get a little confused. But it seems that, that the churches that do this seem to be growing. They have a lot more young people there. They're attracting the some teenagers and 20-somethings and 30-somethings, and they're growing. What's wrong with numbers? What's wrong with influencing a lot of people? Recently, I had a man who was uh, come at, comes out of a background very similar to ours. Go, he moved. He goes to another church. He says, what could be wrong with this? The young people are comfortable. They like it. Well, let's think a little more deeply about this. Oh, no, no. What could be wrong with results? See, that's American pragmatism. See, that's worldliness. The end doesn't justify the means. What the issue is, is what conforms to biblical truth and what kind of singing or worship best fits with the expositional teaching of God's Word. See, there are some things that you can do in singing and as prelude to the study of God's Word that really uh, limits and reduces your ability to concentrate and think and focus. And that's why most of these churches that have 30 or 45 minutes of singing only have 20-minute sermonettes. Nobody can handle much uh, concentration beyond that because they've blown out their circuits with all the emotional response in the singing. So uh, we, we have to learn these things. A, a good book on this that's written not from a biblical perspective but from the perspective of Platonic philosophy is The Closing of the American Mind by Alan Bloom. I think his third chapter is a pretty decent critique of what happens and, in music and how it affects thinking. And, uh, but you have to understand he's writing from the framework of uh, Plato's philosophy and not, uh, not the Bible. So all of this is very important for us to understand why we need to get into a biblical doctrine of worship. And I just want to start with understanding a basic definition. So I know we're getting short on time, but we want to hit a couple of these things very quickly. The first is just understanding the basic words that are used for worship. Uh, the first is the Hebrew word avad, which is, generally means to work or to be worked or to serve or to be in servitude. It's basically a word, a word that has to do with um, doing something. It's a very broad word. It's used in passages such as Deuteronomy uh, 6.13, You shall fear the Lord your God and serve him and shall take oaths in his name. That's that idea of just uh, serving the Lord, working for him, not working for salvation, but doing that which the Lord has commanded. And that's uh, one very broad word for, for worship. It has to do with what we would call Christian service, serving the Lord, a concept that gets lost. Too many churches think that Christian service is, part, is how you grow spiritually, but Christian service is really a result of your spiritual growth. It's utilization of your spiritual gifts, whatever they may be, in local church ministry, missions, or something like that. 
Another word that is used in the Old Testament is the word shakah, which is uh, the counterpart to the word we just looked at, proskuneo, and it means to fall prostrate, sometimes to be despondent. It has that idea of subordinating yourselves to uh, someone in authority. We see this word used in a variety of different Old Testament passages, like Genesis 22.5, when Abram said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, the lad, that's Isaac, and I will go yonder and worship. He was from East Texas, so he had to go yonder and worship, and we will come back to you. This is when he's going up on Mount Moriah to sacrifice Isaac. See, he is going to submit his will to God's will. God's will is to go sacrifice his one and only son, Uh, His will would not normally have gone in that direction, but he is going to worship God by being obedient uh, to him. Uh, Genesis 24, uh, 26, this is when uh, Abraham's servant goes in search of a wife for Isaac. When he finds her, he bows his head and worships the Lord. This brings in the idea of gratitude, that worship involves thankfulness uh, towards God. Another a uh, similar passage in the same context is Genesis 24:28 uh 24:48 and I bowed my head and worshiped the Lord and blessed the Lord God of my master Abraham the word blessing there has that idea of praise so you see that these terms relate to praise relate to thankfulness relate to submission and subordination to God's authority the Greek has the same two basic words Two basic meanings, proskuneo, the idea of respect for authority, and the second word is latreia, which is a word we find in Romans 12.1. It has the idea of serving God. So worship involves two aspects. One is the subordination or submission of our thinking to God, and the other is serving Him. And they go together. Romans 12.1, Paul says, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies. Why does he say bodies? Why doesn't he say mind? Because he wants the totality of our person. But if you submit your body, your mind ought to follow with it. He's thinking in terms of the whole person. That you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. The reason it's a sacrifice is because you're not going to do what you want to do. You're going to do what God wants to do. And when you subordinate your will to God's will, then the result of that is serving God. The next verse is the verse that says that we're not going to be conformed to the world, but transformed by the renewing of our mind. That is how we, fundamental way in which we serve the Lord. So we'll just get to point two this morning, which is our definition of worship which I'll just focus on the first sentence. It is to submit or subordinate my opinions, preferences, thoughts, philosophy of life, finances, politics, emotions, relationships, attitudes, actions, time, priorities to the authority of God's Word. I don't think I left anything out. If I left something out, let me know and I'll add it. It it means everything that we do, everything that we are, everything that we think has to come under the submission to what God has said in His Word, which means we have to teach the whole counsel of God. That God's Word doesn't just address how you can get saved or how you can get eternal life and how you can pray or how you can have a spiritual life and how you can solve the problems in your life. That is part of it. But the Bible addresses the entirety of God's creation, giving us a framework whereby we can then interact with the world, the creation, as God has made it, and develop our thinking in all these areas within a biblical or divine viewpoint framework. And that is part of making our life a life of worship to God. But that is personal worship, and we also recognize there's aspects of corporate worship, which we'll get into when we resume the study after I uh, get back from Kiev, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to think through these things in your word related to worship. Worship honors and glorifies you for who you are, because you are worthy of all honor and glory and praise and dominion because of who you are. 
for what you have done in history in sending your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb who was slain for our sins, He who paid the penalty for our sins. Father, we recognize that there may be some here this morning who are unsure of their salvation, uncertain of their eternal life. They are without hope. They are without meaning in life. And they know there must be something more. Well, the something more is what was provided by you through the Lord Jesus Christ. We are born spiritually dead, but Scripture says that by faith in Jesus Christ, we can become alive. We are new again and born again. And the only way that that can happen is when we put our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as the one who paid the penalty for our sins. Once we put our faith and trust in him at that instant, you impute to us your perfect righteousness, you declare us just, you regenerate us, and give us an eternal life that can never, ever be lost. Father, we're so thankful for our so great salvation, for all that you have supplied us and provided us, for your word that guides and directs us and informs our thinking. And now, Father, we pray that if there's any here who is not saved, that they would take this opportunity to trust in you and that those of us who are already believers would be challenged to be consistent and to endure in our own spiritual growth. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.